0: Well, amen. My name is Rex Blackburn. I'm just a member here at Emanuel. I'm not a pastor here or anything, uh, but it's my privilege to be able to preach to you all today uh, from Psalm 109. Let me open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. God, all Scripture is given, inspired by you, and you have promised us That all scripture is profitable. So God, this morning, may we profit from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, there are difficult things in the Bible. There are things that are unpleasant to address in the Bible. Among these things are doctrines like the doctrine of hell, eternal conscious torment, It's not pleasant to think about. Um, The idea that those who seem to be Christians may not actually be Christians can be one of the most frightful things in Scripture to consider. Maybe even things like limiting pastoral roles in the church to men and not to women can be unpopular and can be perhaps unpleasant to our modern sensibilities. Often when Christians talk about these doctrines, particularly talking with people that are hostile towards those doctrines, you'll often hear Christians use apologetic language. Christians almost apologize for things that God has said, things that Christians for centuries have believed to be true. Among that group of beliefs, biblical principles, doctrines, the imprecatory psalms often find themselves. Now, imprecatory is a word that I'll be using semi-frequently this morning, and it just means Bringing curses upon, uh, speaking curses towards someone. Imprecations is another way of rendering that word. This morning's psalm, the psalm that Pastor Alex read for us a few minutes ago, Psalm 109, is among the couple of archetypical examples of imprecatory psalms. And you probably gathered that from the language that was used when we were reading it together. Uh, unpleasant, unkind, you may even think things that are written here in these psalms. We know from the start that these psalms are important because they're in the Psalter. They're included in Holy Scripture. So they're inspired by God and we're promised that they're profitable to us and it's every way appropriate that we should think about them this morning. So in a series on the psalms, you might not think or imagine that we'll be considering these sorts of thoughts and verses this morning, but... Here we find ourselves. I want you to have the psalm open in front of you, whether in the bulletin or in your Bible. I'm going to give you a few just considerations about the structure of this psalm, and then I want us to read through it one more time. And I want you to be looking for those structural pieces that we kind of point out here as we read through it once more. This psalm follows, if we're using sort of English grammar language, which is something I love to do, If we're we're using that sort of language, this psalm follows a structure that's sort of A, B, A, B, C. Okay, So you might have heard that before in poetry, where there's a certain rhyme scheme where A and A rhyme with one another, B and B rhyme with one another, and then C is just doing its own thing. So A, B, A, B, C. That's sort of what we see in this psalm this morning. A component number one and A component number two sort of correlate with one another. The same thing with B1 and B2, and then C is sort of unique. So we'll see that the the A portions here are David giving complaints. And I don't mean complaint in like a pejorative bad sense, like David's just a complainer. I mean that David is bringing his griefs, his complaints, his, his problems before the Lord. So we see him do that at the beginning of the psalm, and we'll see him do that again sort of in the middle somewhere. Then this large B portion is David Sort of asking God to, to bring down his wrath on these people that are threatening him. So David's, David's curses, we could call them. Um, that's the B slot here. And then there's another B slot where David sort of does a similar thing towards the end of the psalm. And then C, the conclusion of the psalm. We're going to see David just praising God at the end of the psalm. Okay, so I want us to read through this psalm one more time. I'm going to read through it. I want you to be paying attention, looking for those pieces. So, again, he's going to start off with a complaint, then he's going to move to sort of curses, back to complaint, more curses, and then sort of concluding with praise. Okay, let's read through this psalm one more time. Starting at verse 1 Be not silent, O God of my praise. For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate. They attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Transition. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayers be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may be cut off, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and broken-hearted to put them to death. He loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. Now watch, he's gonna transition back to sort of that second A portion. He's bringing his complaints before the Lord again. But you, O Lord my God, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I'm gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I'm an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Transition again. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. So there's that second sort of round of curses, and now he's going to close. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. So I want to take the outline of this sermon from that exact outline of the psalm itself. So I want us to first look at that A portion, let's look at David's complaints to the Lord, then the B portion, David's curses against his enemies, and then C, David's conclusion of praise to God. Let's start with David's complaints. David's complaints. So these are the verses in which David is describing his condition before the Lord. Let's look at verses 1 through 5 one more time. And I want you to see if you can spot a common theme in these first five verses. Okay, Look for a pattern of repetitive sort of language. Starting in verse 1. Be not silent, O God of my praise. For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Did you spot the sort of common thread through those verses? The nature of the sort of distress David is receiving from his enemies? Spoken, words, verbal. You see that repeated over and over again. And if you remember, when we looked at the theme of suffering in 1 Peter, we saw something similar. In 1 Peter, those of you who were here with us during that that series, we saw that the the persecution towards Christians of a verbal nature is not to be ignored. It's talked about in Scripture quite frequently, actually, and we see that here. The complaints David raises about his enemies concern wicked and deceitful mouths. They speak against me. They have lying tongues, words of hate, accusations toward David. So it's no surprise that what does he ask God to do? Lord, don't be silent. Lord, you speak. So it's important to note that if you tend to think that, well, if, if you're not a martyr, or if you're not physically suffering for the cause of Christ, then you have no business talking about persecution. That's simply not true. Often when the Bible speaks about persecution, it's highlighting this exact sort of slander, accusation, evil words that you receive from the world around you as a a man or woman of God. But we spoke about that at length in 1 Peter, so we won't dwell on that too much this morning. Look at the second cluster of David's complaint in verses 21 to 25. So we saw it in verse 1 through 5. Now let's look at that second group of of David's complaints in 21 through 25. He says, You, O Lord my God, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. For I'm poor, I'm needy. My heart is stricken within me. I'm gone like a shadow at evening. I'm shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I'm an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. So here, David's crying out about his needy condition, even that his body is gaunt, is is weak, is sort of haggard from the sort of stress that he's been getting. We're not sure why, but we can assume that it's related to what we saw in verses 1 through 5, that the hatred against David is so virulent and hostile, and he's taking it so hard that it's manifesting itself physically as he tries to deal with this. These accusations that are coming his way. Now, these are the sorts of things we're used to seeing in the Psalms. So, uh, for instance, we we sing the song, Lord, from sorrows deep I call. And and if you're you're thinking about a series on the Psalms, and you showed up at church this morning and and they're preaching on the Psalms, these are the sorts of things you would expect to, to be preached on. Christians are weak, needy, lowly people. Our hearts are cast down within us. Those are the sorts of things that Christians for centuries have loved to to have the psalm sort of give voice to the cries of their soul in verses like these. So what business do precious sort of verses like these have being next to imprecations and curses and things like, let his children be fatherless, may his wife be a widow. How in the world are these sorts of ideas grouped together in the same psalter? much less in the same psalm, just a a paragraph separate from one another. Well, it's important to see that this is common in the psalms. Themes like this sit perfectly beside one another in a happy tension. And how is that so? Well, because if we look at all the mistreatment, all the anxiety in these sections of complaint, all these things that David is suffering, all the weakness that he's confessing to God, the, the bodily harm that he's even experienced because of the accusations that he's receiving, we see David implore for God to act. And we'll see that's why these two ideas that seem contradictory can sit so close to one another. That's why the, the suffering of the Christian soul a- and the wrath and justice of God can sit next to one another because Christians long for God to act to make things right. But that's a little foretaste of where we'll, uh, where we'll go here in a moment. He says, be not silent, O God, of my praise. Now, he's not asking God to make noise. He's asking for God to do something, to make himself known. He says again, you, O Lord my God, deal on my behalf. Deliver me. So we notice here this plea for God's action. But we also notice David's motivation for God's action. So look closely here at verse 21. You, O Lord my God, O God my Lord, deal on my behalf. Why? For your name's sake. So when David asks God to act on his behalf, when David asks God to do something, what motivation is there for God to act here? the sake of God's own name. And this is a sort of motivation that I think is pretty rare among Christians today, that we would ask God to do something for the sake of his own name. We are naturally self-centered creatures, very concerned with our own comfort, consumed with our plans and that they be brought about. David here, instead, though he is concerned with those things, I think. David here, when he's pleading with God to act, he says, God, do it so that your name will be upheld. The glory that your name deserves will be ascribed to you. Now, this isn't some attempt on David's part to manipulate God into acting. I think this is David's sincere concern that God's glory will appear diminished if his enemies are allowed to prevail over him. And we actually see a similar thing in the life of Moses so if you remember with the life of Moses when the people of Israel are are actually God is angry with them uh, because Moses has come down with the Ten Commandments and they instead have been worshipping the golden calf God in his fury righteous fury at these people says Moses I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to start over with you Moses pleads with God don't do this and he gives two reasons number one God, remember the covenant you made with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. Number two, God, consider, what will the Egyptians think? If you miraculously delivered your people out of their hand and then just let them die in the wilderness. God, your name, your glory might be sullied if you do this. God, preserve your glory by preserving your people. And God, relents. And we see throughout the Bible that this is a, a common motivation of God to act. And if you've, never, if you've never heard this before, it might be jarring that God loves his own glory. God is for God. And even in something like Psalm 23, where the Lord is a shepherd, I shall not want, he, he leads me beside still waters and green pastures, and he restores my soul for his name's sake. We see phrases like that popping up all over the Bible, and they pop up here in this psalm. Why? Because God loves God's glory. And think about it. What else should God love more than his own glory? If his glory is the most precious and beautiful and right thing in the universe, what else should sit atop God's priority list? It's perfectly right for God to feel this way. It's perfectly right for Moses to plead with God, on this note, it's perfectly right for David to do the same. So as David finds himself the target of baseless accusation, slander, such that it's even manifesting itself physically, his body is skinny and gaunt and he, he, he feels unhealthy because of it, he's not merely concerned with relief from his woes. He is. But he's also concerned with the fact that God's glory is at stake in the welfare of God's people. May we be the same. When we take our complaints to God. Not only concerned with God, rescue me. Yes, God, rescue me. God, glorify your name in rescuing me. Let everyone know that only God could have done this. So these are the complaints that David brings before the Lord. Second, let's look at the curses. And this is where we'll spend sort of the the heaviest portion of the sermon here. This is where we deal with the imprecatory nature of this imprecatory psalm. So, The very name imprecatory, I think, is a bit misleading. And I didn't come up with that. That's a common sort of demarcation for these sorts of psalms. And there are two psalms, really Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, that sit atop of the list of imprecatory psalms. I think the name can be a bit misleading because it's not just calling down of curses. That is happening, but that's not merely what's happening. There are evildoers at work, People are being mistreated wrongly. There are those who are abusing the needy, the poor, the brokenhearted. Even David himself is experiencing this sort of mistreatment. So David's not just breathing out idle threats against some personal enemy, and he has some sort of petty consideration and and some sort of vendetta against this person, so he's mad at them, so he's praying God's wrath on them. No, he's asking God to act on behalf of those who can't act for themselves. He's asking God to make things right. So, know this, at the center of the imprecatory psalms is not some sort of personal vendetta. At the center of the imprecatory psalms is a cry for God to bring justice, a cry for God to do what's right, to take the crooked, fractured, broken things we see around us and make them straight, make them whole, make them right again. Let accusers be accused. Let the one who curses be cursed. But let the one who does right be blessed. Let him prosper. Let the one who loves God experience deliverance. The imprecatory Psalms give voice to every Christian who has lamented the broken and evil condition of this world. Let me stop here for a brief moment of application. If you ever look at the world around you and feel legitimate anger, at the wrongdoing that is allowed to happen, at the wrongdoing that is celebrated even. Five minutes of the news will drive this point home. Not even the national news, the local news is depressing enough. Um, One story that I saw just days ago, I debated on whether or not to even bring this up, but I think it illustrates the point um, where a, a father was uh, sentenced for beating his own six-year-old son to death. And the mother was sentenced too because she tried to help cover it up. It's wrong. Those of you who have children, imagine I have a one-year-old. The thought of someone bringing harm to him fills me with rage. Parents, you know, what I, you know what I'm talking about. Imagine a child, defenseless, helpless, unable to respond in any way, violently murdered, and it happens all the time. Children are kidnapped, abandoned by their parents, the children themselves grow up to mistreat their ailing elderly parents. The, these aren't just natural disasters or calamities that befall all humanity. These are things that are perpetrated by people, done willingly, sometimes premeditated, with malice and forethought. It's wrong, it's wicked, it's vile, it's cruel, and it should make us, as God's people, angry, angry that such innocent young ones are being exploited. We might say, how can this happen? How can this be? How can someone do something like that? Well, brother, sister, the imprecatory Psalms are a place to go. They provide an answer for us. Because the one who does evil will not long prevail. God is not mocked the evildoer will reap what he has sown. But, however, sort of another point of application here, lest we be too quick to pronounce God's judgment on all the evil in the world, the imprecatory psalms also require that we examine ourselves. And you may already feel this impulse sort of arising when you read a psalm like this. Have we lived, spoken, acted, thought in ways that are righteous or have we in our own sinful hidden thoughts aligned ourselves with the very evil we hate so much the imprecatory psalms require that we examine ourselves in this way we should not be so swift to call God's judgment down on sinners when we ourselves are unrepentant of the sin in our own hearts And actually, David himself has found himself on the wrong side of that scenario once. You may know where I'm going. After David has committed adultery with another man's wife, impregnated her, murdered, albeit indirectly, her noble husband, the prophet Nathan comes in and tells Nathan a parable. Nathan says, before David, the king sitting on his throne, there were two men. In a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. Man, that's a little interesting note to throw in there, which he had bought. This man who has nothing somehow bought this lamb, even more valuable. And he brought up this lamb. The lamb grew up with him and with his children. The lamb used to eat of the morsels of his table and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. This lamb was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man. And the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for this guest who had come. So instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the traveler who had come to him. And David, when he heard this, his anger was greatly kindled against the rich man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you're the man. You did this. You stole the noble man's wife. So upon hearing of this great injustice, this wrongdoing, David rushed right past self-examination and swiftly pronounce God's judgment even in the Lord's own name. He says, as Yahweh lives, this man deserves to die. Speaking judgment against whom? Himself. Why? Because he didn't examine himself. And so, Christian, before we run off in our anger against the world and the evil that happens in it, we must remember we too are sinners. We too are guilty before the Lord. So yes, the imprecatory psalms bring comfort, but we must also remember the words of Jesus, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, you hypocrite. So the imprecatory psalms should bring us comfort that God will not let evil prevail, but they should also bring self-examination, realizing that we too are evil sinners. So with the imprecatory psalms, we must remember those two things. But before we look at the conclusion of the psalm, I just want to give a few moments to this question. Should Christians pray imprecatory prayers? So as we've looked at the the curses that David has has brought down on his enemies here, on his accusers, should Christians pray this way? Uh, it's It's a great question hopefully one that you were asking sort of in the back of your mind. You may have said, I've never really prayed this way, but I see this prayer in the Bible. It's inspired scripture. Should I be praying this way? Well, in the Psalms, we have to remember, this is written in an old covenant context. Okay, so God is primarily working through a nation, and that nation has enemies that set themselves against God by attacking this nation. So these sorts of prayers make a lot more sense in an old covenant scheme. But should Christians members of the new covenant, pray these sorts of prayers? Well, the first question that I hope you're asking is, I wonder if these sorts of prayers show up anywhere in the New Testament. So we see them in the Old Testament. Do we see imprecatory prayers in the New Testament ever? Well, actually, yes. They're scarce, um, sometimes indirect, but they are present. I'm going to give you three examples. The first one, Revelation 6. Revelation 6. As the seals are being opened, God's judgment against the world is being poured out. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. So these martyrs cried out with a loud voice, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Well, that's as imprecatory as they come. God is being asked to avenge the afflicted righteous by pouring out his wrath on the evildoer. Okay, here's an example. Galatians 1, so a letter from Paul. Here's our second example. Uh, not a prayer directly, but Paul says, speaking of those who preach another gospel, let them be accursed, anathema. That means eternal cursing. Unless you think he just got carried away, he says, Let me say it again, let them be accursed. Okay, so there's two examples of this sort of language showing up in the New Testament. Last one, we just prayed it a second ago. The Lord's Prayer. We say, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Then what do we pray? We pray for Christ's kingdom to come. What does that mean? Yes, it means peace, stability, righteousness, and judgment against those who would set themselves against the king. So, again, not direct, but implied. I can't resist it. There's an imprecation implication there. I'm sorry. Um, implied in the Lord's Prayer is that sort of bring judgment, make things right. Your kingdom come. So there are examples, but they're not nearly as as many, as frequent, or as strong in the New Testament as they are in the Old. In fact, in spite of these few examples, the overwhelming pattern in the New Testament is that in the face of adversaries, we pray not for judgment, but for mercy. Examples here are numerous, but I'll give just a few. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, even after he had just called the council in Israel stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, resistors of the Holy Spirit, he prays for them as they're stoning him to death. And what does he say? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. If anyone has a basis, a warrant for calling down God's wrath. It's Stephen, innocent, righteous Stephen, who's being killed without cause. Shouldn't he say, Lord, stop them. Deliver me. God, they're attacking me. I've been blameless. They are the sinners. Bring your judgment. But instead, he says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Paul, after he and Silas are captured, beaten, thrown in prison. We have no mention of them sitting in their cell, praying down God's judgment on their captors. What are they doing? They're praising God, singing hymns, rejoicing that they've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. The greatest example, Jesus. The one who commanded us to pray for our enemies, to bless those who spitefully use us from the cross, Couldn't Jesus have quoted an imprecatory psalm flawlessly? I looked for pity, and there is none. They give me poison for food, and for my thirst they give me sour wine to drink. Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your burning anger overtake them, Lord God. Couldn't he have said that? The psalm's even referring to him being given vinegar and things like that on the cross, but instead he says, Father, Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So, the overwhelming pattern in the new covenant is not for Christians to take up arms in our prayers against the unrighteous, it's to understand we've been shown great mercy. God, show mercy. Continue to show mercy to sinners. Something has changed. Some sort of divide, watershed, something has happened from the old covenant to the new covenant that instead of calling down fire, summoning bears, praying God's wrath, Christians bless their enemies, love their accusers, pray for God's mercy to be shown on sinners. So we have to ask, what has changed? What is it about the work of Christ, about the life of Jesus, that would make Christians slow to pray in precatory prayers. That instead, prayers of forgiveness would rise up from the Christian soul. Prayers of mercy would rise up from the Christian soul in the face of accusation. Well, there's a lot that could be said there. And we could get deeply into redemptive history and look at the the old covenant versus the new covenant and the the, the continuity and incontinuity that, or discontinuity that happens between those two covenants, I think we can clearly understand the point just by looking clearly at the gospel. Each facet of the gospel of Jesus Christ drives home the fact that Christians are people, should be people, that love mercy. First, if we believe the gospel, we believe that all men, all women, including ourselves, are born in Adam and are therefore sinners, both by nature and by glad choice. Happy rebels against God. So if you're a Christian, you know and understand deeply that you yourself are a sinner, just like that one that's accusing you. Two, all sinners are together under God's wrath and are rightful recipients of his justice. Three, were it not for Christ, who offers to all the free gift of mercy, we would be without hope. Four, we believe that it's merely by faith in God's grace that we are saved. So, nothing about you, Christian, is meritorious of God's favor that the unbeliever that you would pray against doesn't possess. We're all leveled at the foot of the cross, it's often said. And five, therefore, Christians are people who, while we hate evil, must love mercy. We have been shown, Christian, great mercy by a God who is perfectly right in giving us nothing but wrath. Why, then, would we wish God's wrath upon someone else? Even the person that we're so angry about. Great injustice has been done by this person. Christian, were it not for God's grace, how are you any different than them? Christians are people that must love God's mercy. Now, notice I didn't say we should never pray for God's righteous vengeance on evildoers. But we should follow Scripture's example that these prayers should be outweighed in their frequency and their weight by prayers of praise, intercession, and mercy. Finally, David's conclusion to so the last two verses of the psalm. So after bringing his complaints before the Lord, after, bringing, uh, after hoping curses on his enemies, David closes the psalm with these two verses. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. Why? Why? For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. We see that David doesn't end the psalm by just raining down more anger on his enemies. He closes by declaring that he will give God great thanks. He'll praise him in the midst of the throng, the gathered people. Why? Because God stands beside the needy. He's ready to save the poor, brokenhearted, needy one from death. So do you see what David highlights here? It's just confirming what we've seen throughout the psalm that this psalm is about not David and some vendetta or even his enemies. It's most ultimately about God. It's about God's justice and it's about God's glory. That's what imprecatory psalms are about. Now, how do we see that in this praise? Well, David declares that he will glorify God in the crowd, he will proclaim God's greatness in front of people. Why? He wants God's name and his glory to be maintained. Why? Because God defends those who would otherwise be wrongfully exploited. God stands beside the needy one. God is just. So in, a, in, in these final verses, in David's final praise, in his conclusion to the psalm, what is he lifting up? He's lifting up God's justice. He's lifting up God's glory. He wants God to be glorified because God is just and he will do what is right. So, not just in this psalm, but in the imprecatory psalms in general, Christian, please understand, please remember, and please glory in the fact that these are not ultimately about the evil in the world, about the anger of David or of any other Christian, or about God being some uncontrollable, angry man in the sky, The imprecatory psalms and Psalm 109 are most deeply about God's righteous standard of justice being upheld and about God's glory being seen and loved. And may God be praised for that. Let's pray. God, we do exist in a troubled world. God, we look around us, we look inside our own hearts, and we see evil, we see sin. And God, as Christian people, we confess together we hate sin. We hate it, God. We hate it in others, we hate it in ourselves. But Lord, we repent of sin. We want to align ourselves with you, with Christ, in a campaign against sin. But we don't want to align ourselves with sin, because you're a God of justice. And that's good news to the Christian, and bad news to the evildoer. So Lord, let us take comfort in the fact that you're a God who is just, and then may we glorify you for that fact. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.